0: centerlefttalkradio.com when you go there you will see two links the first is our podcast link the way most people get this type of show but there's an option there's a second link we call it the radio loop link not to make you say it three times fast I wouldn't try it at this hour uh and it's basically this show running in a loop so that you can kind of access it and pick it up at any point it's in, in, in that rather analogish way you might have turned on any talk show way back when. Um, and it's an option, and we, we, we've had it from the very beginning for, for the six years that we've been doing this show, and uh, people enjoy it. And we like keeping it there, and, and that's what we're going to do. Um, it is the 3rd of October. We are in the month of October already, although uh, th- th- this early October uh, we are starting off with some, um, well, better weather than we had at the end of September. We've, we've managed to get past what was right here in this part of the Hudson Valley and I, and I may have been, let's see, would this have had, no, Friday? No, that's right, it would have been, it would, it would have still been raining, it, it was still raining on Friday. When all was said and done last week, uh, towards the, the end of September, as it were, uh, we had uh, accumulated, we had gotten nearly five inches of rain here. In our little section of the Lower Hudson Valley, on the east side of the Hudson, that's 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 a that's an incredible amount of rain, and and it it, it adds to rain that we'd gotten a few months earlier. If you'll recall, the remnants of tropical storm, uh, which one was it? Was it Ida? I I don't even remember names anymore. These are all supposed to be what they call hundred-year storms. Um, uh, and and, and hundred-year storms seem to be happening with with with, with fierce regularity, frightening regularity. Uh, I don't even recall when they were when this storm that we just had was being predicted that, that there was even um, that there was even any talk that it would be anywhere near as much rain as it was. What what apparently happened is that the the low the low pressure system was hanging off the coast. Was not bothering to move, and with a high pressure system to the west, a low pressure system to the east, and hot, humid air all the way down in the south, it was literally funneling warm moist tropical air. Initially, it had been the remnants of some tropical storm, but then it just kept pushing more and more rain. So we got we got both the remnants of a storm, a hurricane, which had been tr- downgraded to a tropical So We never really had the winds. We, but there were parts of the area that had some of it, but for, for the most part, it was water and water and water. And no one even bothered... This is the rare thing because you know, with the with the uh, meteorological folks uh, here, you know, in this in 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 America these days, I, I can't speak for the whole country, but I imagine this this is probably more or less true. Uh, there's this need to be a storm team or storm trackers or I don't know, uh, uh, horrible weather forecasters or whatever the hell it is. You know, it's it, it, the weather is a. Um, is an enemy and 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 constantly being in crouching form waiting for it to impinge on you is sort of the approach that the that the weather forecaster, the, the the weather people, you know, who usually it's a traffic and weather. If it's a big enough station, you got a traffic person, a weather person, and the two of them kind of work hand in hand. And uh, the traffic person can't always say it's terrible, depending on where you are. Here in the New York area, you could always find something difficult to talk about. I I, I find that with the weather people here in the New York area, all the, if you, as you go through all the TV stations, anyway, there seems to be a sense of disappointment if there isn't something horrible they can say is about to happen? Some of them uh, far more graphic about it than others. And and of course, with the weather uh, and and the incredible change in the way weather is there, the questions, of course, naturally, the conversation, the questions, gets back to, well, is it really climate change? And suddenly, we're back into the insane position of. Having science being repoliticized. No, there is no climate change. No, it's just an accident. No, it's just the way it is. I ah, shut up. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to spend any money. We don't have to do anything to change anything. Just uh, it, it'll take care of itself over time. Versus uh, reality, you know that. Yes, please follow the charts. Look what's going on. Uh, you you know. Uh, uh, you, you have to get a little real about this stuff. You can't just constantly uh, look at look at it and say that this is nothing but a lib plot to what extract money out of corporations and raise. I, I don't know. I don't know what the rationale is. It it, it just gets nuttier and nuttier all the time. Um, but it's there. And, and, and the whole notion of denying and, and, and the whole notion of being um, revved up about something uh, within a, and, and the something having a politically actionable context. Get you know, getting a group to uh, vote for us, you know, in the case of the of the MAGA Republicans, there's there's this whole wild world in which they live, that uh, doesn't um, doesn't really comport with reality largely, but with all of the uh, with all of the various uh, conspiracy theories and what have you, uh, it, it keeps a lot of people. Uh, in line and ultimately linked to Donald. Donald, of course, now is in the middle of his uh, of his fraud trial, his New York State fraud trial. He's already been declared. His he and his companies have been declared uh, f- fraudsters, if you will. And starting yesterday, began the money phase of all this. Now Donald normally doesn't um, concede. Uh, the, the the power of the courts over him doesn't matter that he's been indicted four times doesn't matter that he's lost his business licenses in New York State doesn't matter that the judge has already uh, said that they that a receiver has to be appointed to run his business doesn't matter any of that. He usually finds a way just to poo-poo it, you know. And you have to draw me kicking and screaming into the courtroom. And the only reason I've showed up is because I have to be indicted, and I'm being arraigned, and I have to be here. Blah blah blah. But but this time around, uh, something a little different is happening. The first two days of the actual tra- remember, he's already been declared a fraudster. His he is fraudulent, and his and his business licenses and those of his kids for all of the all the stuff they do in New York all the businesses in New York state they've been they've been essentially suspended withdrawn donald no longer he and his sons are no longer authorized to do business as those licenses or as the as their uh, as the statement of those licenses permits. So that, that's how that's how everyone does business in New York. If you have a business that's that's set up as something than other than a purely personal uh, activity, and you've put it any kind of. Uh, any kind of a corporate or a, or a state-defined structure around it, uh, an LLC, a corporation, a whatever, how, how, however, you know, a PC, whatever you may be, whatever you are structuring, that is done with a license from the state, a permission, a certificate. And that certificate is, to be, is maintained by the state. If the state's, it's at the state's behest that it's out there, and if the state deems that you're doing stuff that's not permissible under the rules of the state, the state may withdraw. It's it's it's, it's the state's, uh, you know, you do it at the pleasure of the state. You do things that are illegal and criminal and you start misvaluating stuff and blah, 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 blah. We, we talked about in the last show, yeah, well, the state gets to pull your licenses but of course Donald gets to then uh, after the uh, court appearance and this is this happened yesterday's he gets out there I don't know if it was in a hallway or wherever they had it but he had an impromptu press cutway well, impromptu uh, everybody knew he was going to do and he starts knocking the judge and knocking the process i mean which is which is abject insanity when you consider that this is a bench trial because his people were too damn frightened to basically try to make it a jury trial, knowing that a jury would probably go absolutely bonkers on them, so figured they had a better chance just working the judge if they could. Maybe they'll threaten him. Uh, Endragon, I think. I think the guy's name is. And 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 you know they've already, of course, they you know they, just like he just uh, threatened the life of uh, General Milley and is basically encouraging someone in in his wacky maga ranks to show up and do something stupid horrible and you know he should have been in any other time he would have been killed for being a traitor he said of Millie, that was uh, that was uh, finally General Kelly who kept his mouth shut forever uh, finally uh, in an article that was published in the Atlantic the other day finally said that everything that Trump had said was horrible and that he's a disaster and he's the worst thing on earth and it ended the article with the words God help us referring to Donald Trump Um, This is the military commenting on the former, perpetually former, please, commander-in-chief. But the thing here is that there will be people listening to him. He will spin this. He will will take no consideration of the fact that in, in pissing off the judge, who was judge and jury in this particular case that he basically is almost guaranteeing what the situation will be. There seems to be, the attitude seems to be, I'm going to get nailed, I'm going to get massacred, I'll simply deal with this on appeal. It's a state situation. It's never going to make it to the Supreme Court. I I, I would hope it wouldn't. It doesn't make any sense. There's, There's no federal constitutional matter here. These are all matters of New York State. So somewhere within the New York court system, and from here it would be the Court of Appeals, it would be the next step up, and then finally uh, the well Supre- well the, the Court of Appeals and then the appellate division of the Supreme Court of, of New York State. That's where it would go. I, I don't know that there's going to be any legal basis for this to actually be overturned or heard. The only question here now for Donald is how much money is he going to have to pay? And this, of course, will become another element of how unfair the system is. They're going after me. Letitia James ran her last re-election campaign on I will get Donald Trump. This is simply trying to stop me from running for president, which I deserve and I have a right to, and my blah, 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 and it's nothing but more and more red meat for the base. It is a standard, standard process and practice. And it's something that I think more and more people are becoming, I don't, I don't want to say comfortable with, but it's no longer a surprise or it's no longer a shock what Donald is doing and his methodology. The methodology is, is becoming so well-known that it's predictable. It's repeated. It's repetitive. Uh, c- people, on, on, people in the media, uh, commentators, well, myself included, can, can virtually predict exactly how Donald is going to play any particular event. And you understand that there is a relatively small slice of America that basically is going to buy it, whose, whose strength is amplified by virtue of the fact that they are, for the most part, that part of the Republican Party who basically gets involved in, heavily involved in primaries and then, of course, will vote as well. But, of course, if you added the entire Republican Party up, by and large, a lot of the ultra-crazies that are out there, the cl- what we call the clown car in Congress, would probably not be there if everyone voted in the Republican Party and simply didn't leave it out there to the crazies to basically define this group of about, I don't know, what is it, a dozen people or so in the Congress who just uh, got, got their well got their clocks clean because because Kevin McCarthy depended on the Democrats to uh to basically pass the continuing resolution that's kept the country open for a while. Now there's a vote that's out there. Mac Gates and company, uh, they're putting a vote on the floor. Uh, I move that Kevin, uh, I move that the chair be vacated, uh, that there no longer be the speaker, that blah, blah, blah. Now we're going to have a vote. Now the Democrats get to decide, well, you know, we work with Geth, with, with uh, McCarthy to essentially... Uh, Keep the government open. Do we work with him to keep him in his speakership? And there's another argument out there that says, take him out. Let the Republicans go crazy. Try to find someone who could actually fill McCarthy's shoes. Uh, The current thinking is they can't. And then ultimately run, I've been saying Nancy Pelosi, but realistically, you would use the minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries, run him, get five Republicans, five Republicans, is all it would take to vote with the Democrats who will vote in block for this, and suddenly you have the outrageous, insane situation of a Democrat being the Speaker of the House for a House that has a majority of Republicans. We've seen every other insane situation. We've seen how the Republicans can't govern themselves. This wouldn't be any crazier. And it always comes back to the same thing: the the paranoia, the the fear, the anger, the angst, the the everything driving all of these. We're being wrong; that we have grievances, and look, we're, Donald is the only one who can express them, and and we and we sublimate them through Donald. And without Donald, we just go back to being no one and nothing, and no one will ever hear us. And and by the way, we are at the edge of disaster here. In It's a disaster, and without Donald, we will simply sink into the abyss of nothingness, and we have to... Craziness. But craziness wins the day across too many parts of the American political and and social spectrum. Now, I I, I mentioned this on our last show, and I... uh, and I, 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 uh, I, I didn't have an opportunity to sort of follow it up in our last show. But I want to do this today. Uh, there was an interview that took place, I guess it was last Thursday. Uh, Christiane Amanpour does a show on PBS on Chetwell. It shows up here on Channel 13, a few of the other local PBS TV channels. And she does interviews. Uh, she's based in London, but she does brilliant, brilliant work. Uh, yes, she is. Uh, I, I would. She leans towards the left. Uh, I would not call her a a flagrant uh, a hyper lib. What, what whatever whatever the hell it is that the magas people will refer to libs and democrats as, whatever the political differentiation. That's okay. That's permissible. Um, but she she manages to get some incredibly insightful and thoughtful people in there and to touch on some amazing parts and it doesn't it's not just america she 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 her her beat is the planet but when she when she reflects on america and deals with american issues uh, she's frequently is able to go to the heart and soul of, of what is going on and, and, and give such a, a clear perspective, such a clear vision of, if not the solution, what the problem is. Well, frequently understanding the problem is, is, is obviously the first step to just about any solution about anything. She, uh, one of the people, she has some, she has a woman who works with her regularly. Uh, what's her name? Um, uh, Mich- oh, Michelle Marcus, I'm sorry, yeah. Michelle Marcus is an interviewer. She has several different people. In the words, Christiane will do her bit and she'll talk about something. She'll do a, a monologue and then pass it off to one of her correspondents who will then do an interview with someone that, uh, that she finds interesting. And this was the case... Last Thursday, it would have been. Uh, Michelle Marcus in, uh, was uh, interviewing a guy by the name of Russell Moore. It, it, does the name sound familiar to you? Uh, he is the editor-in-chief of something called Christianity Today. Christianity Today. It's a very big, massive, um, uh, evangelical. Base. He is an ev- a, a self-described evangelical and i think he's and he's written a new book and i think it's called losing religion a message from the a message a call from the altar or something an altar call there's the subtext to it and and what is fascinating about russell moore is that he has been forever considered one of the most conservative of conservative um evangelical Christians, certainly from a theological and a moral uh, perspective. But he has some remarkable, remarkable insights into the problems that have arisen within the evangelical community. And I would add to this by extension, conservative, Catholic, and other Christian communities that I am aware of, people that I know, this whole politicization of religion, of of conservative religion in America. And, And what this is costing both the people on the inside within these religions and what it's costing the country and how it's so anomalous, so contradictory to what the whole nature of religion and conservative religion is and should be. Well, I, 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 I recorded the interview, the audio of the interview. It was obviously a TV thing. And I'd very much like to play a significant portion of it right now. Uh, We'll we'll, we'll just have, uh, rather than me coming in and and interrupting it, we'll have our usual little uh, station identification jingle in the background, just to let you know you're still listening to Center Left Radio. You know the jingle. Yeah, that one. I'm going to run most of that interview. It'll probably run somewhere in the range of about a little over 10 minutes. But I want you to listen to this very carefully, and we'll and we'll talk about it a little bit on the other side. This is worth listening to. Here we go. This is an interview that a that uh, uh, let, let's call her an associate commentator working with Christian Amanpour. Her name is. Uh, uh, M- uh, Michelle Marcus, uh, she, he, she is, intrad- she is uh, interviewing uh, the major leader of the evangelical movement. I, th- I think he actually may have recently retired from a, an official position within the evangelical movement. I, didn't, I don't know how that movement is set up structurally or any other way, but he was a major player there and has recently come out of the book. Guy's name is Russell Moore. I'm, this is not from the beginning. I'm picking this up a little bit of a ways into the interview. Please listen.
1: And now the evangelical church in the United States faces significant challenge from the current political landscape. Russell Moore is the editor in chief of Christianity Today and he explores this theme in his new book. And he's joining Michelle Martin to discuss questions of religious identity. Thanks Christian. Pastor Russell Moore, thank you so much for talking with us. Well, thanks for having me. I think people, um, even if they don't necessarily follow issues of kind of faith and politics closely, they might remember you because you had a very high-ranking position uh, at the Southern Baptist Convention. You um, were one of the people who was tasked with speaking out on issues of public concern. You begin this book by recounting your experiences at the end of your tenure. And um, it's pretty bracing to read. Would you describe what was happening that caused you to um, think differently about your time there? What, what that, those last couple of years were like?
2: Well, it it was bracing to write and even more bracing to live, Uh, but it it was a a situation where really there was controversy over Trump and politicization of the church, uh, some controversies over racial justice and whether or not that's uh, something the the church ought to be concerned with at all, uh, and then questions of sexual abuse, and those were the ones that became the the most um, revelatory in some ways to me. I was not shocked that sexual abuse was happening in the church. I was shocked by some of the responses to it, uh, or at least the lack of response uh, to it, and the, the kind of backlash that even raising the, the question could bring. That's what was surprising to me.
1: Talk about some of that, if you would. Like, what, was some of the, what were some of those internal conversations that, that the rest of us would not have been privy to?
2: Well, there were some people who would say, well, there's really no problem. In our churches, we all know each other. Nothing like this is happening. It's just made up by the media. Uh, There were some people who would say, well, this is just the Me Too movement in the secular world, and it's not something that the church should uh, concern itself with. And then there was, uh, frankly, a lot of really rawly misogynistic uh, sorts of uh, statements and actions that, that would be made. Uh, and so it was a, a confluence of, of events, not with most people. And I think with most people in the pews and most people in the pulpits, there's a, there's a different sort of priority. But uh, there's a significant minority who would, who would make their will uh, known and, and make their will happen.
1: So you've written many books about, you know, theology and the culture and the church and the, the direction you would hope the church or the country or, you know, would go. What would you describe as the purpose of
2: this book? It largely came out of the fact that I find myself having this conversation uh, every day with people who are in the kind of crisis in which they say, I'm not. I'm not wanting to lose my faith, but I'm right on the precipice because they're looking around and they're starting to wonder whether the, the church is just using Jesus as a means to an end. And so I'm trying to, to help people to guard against cynicism really in either direction, because one can be cynical just by shutting down and, and numbing oneself, or one can become cynical by saying, well, this is the way the game's played. I'm just going to play it. And I think there's, a, there's another way and a better way and a less exhausting way for people.
1: It was resonating to read in the book that, you know, earlier in your life and career, you know, as a, as a pastor, you, you talked about how you were often called upon by parents who, who were sad about the direction that they saw their kids going in. You know, they're not faithful. They're not churchgoers. They're not hewing to the standards that we hope for for them. Now you say You are often called upon to counsel young adults who are worried about their parents going down this kind of rabbit hole. Would you talk a little bit about that?
2: Well, this is a conversation that happens all the time where someone will say, uh, my parents have become radicalized on social media or uh, I don't even recognize my parents anymore. They've become involved in conspiracy theories of various kinds. And the thing that's striking to me is that none of these people are asking me, how do I win an argument with them? All of these people are saying, I love my parents or I love my mentors or whoever it is. I really want a connection with them. But everything turns into an argument about some conspiracy theory or so forth. How do I connect with them without giving into that? And that, that comes up all the time now.
1: Well, the book does a number of things. Um, It is a kind of a meditation upon on your own faith journey at this stage of your life and how you reconcile your moral compass and your deeply held beliefs with the way the institutions that you have lived through have changed. But it's also a broader meditation on uh, what has happened to evangelical Christianity in the United States. How would you describe kind of the state of evangelical Christianity um, for people who are not as familiar with it as as you are?
2: We are the people Jesus warned us about. Uh, we, have, uh, we have spent many years uh, warning about secularization as though it's something on the outside. And what we didn't see is the way that we have become secularized. And so the uh, aims and objectives and even our emotional temperature is being driven by something other than uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's one of the reasons why we've lost our, our credibility to the outside world. The outside world often wonders if they aren't more moral than we are. And they have, uh, they have good evidence to bring, to bring forward. Well, one can't credibly bear witness to a gospel under those circumstances. What happened? When did this start? Um, I think it's been happening for, for quite a while with the, the level of rhetoric that came along with political involvement. And so in order to mobilize people, there had to be this rhetoric of um, imminent threat. And so desperate times call for desperate measures. You're about to lose everything. Uh, The outside world is is going to destroy you. And there are genuine challenges that people need to be equipped to to handle. But that kind of rhetoric, I think, turned us into an apocalyptic people in all the worst kinds of ways and not in the best kinds of ways. And then uh, if one adds to that, a social media atmosphere that's able to very quickly give information, misinformation, disinformation to the point that people can't uh, can't sort through the difference between truth and falsehood. we end up in this place.
1: You use the metaphor of the lizard brain, you know it's where it's, it's kind of a, it's an idea of sort of human psychology that's constantly alert to threat and danger. And you you say that this could be particularly toxic when it's merged with religious identity and a church that is, afraid of extinction. How do you see that playing out in the um, evangelical circles right now?
2: Well, it's dangerous to a person because mm-hmm. if one is in a state of constant alert and in an adrenal crouch, there's no uh, way to reflect and to contemplate and to pray and to engage with one's neighbors. But it's also dangerous for, uh, for everybody else and for our democracy and for our church because, uh, because we end up being driven from one fear and one crisis to the other in a way that strips, strips us down. And I think it gives to people an illusion of vitality. If, if they get that adrenal jolt that comes with, with hating their enemies, it can almost substitute for life for a little while.
1: There are people of tremendous stature who have given their lives to the church but because they disagree about something or other, are literally cast out. Like, for example, Saddleback Church has been, you know, I don't, I don't know what's the right term, kicked out of, excommunicated from the Southern Baptist Convention because they have— uh, given women the authority to preach in that church. And I just, and a lot of people I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about a number of ministers, for example, who, for example, said that they didn't support Donald Trump or who raised questions about his conduct, raised questions about his personal conduct, raised questions about the vulgarity and his coarseness and his attitude of kind of hatred toward other people who have been disinvited from their own, separated from their congregations, disinvited to speak. I just, a lot of people wonder, like, how, how is that possible? Like, why, why is this, this figure who seems very loosely attached to the core principles of Christianity is so much more powerful than people who've given their lives to the church?
2: Well, that's the that's the central question right now. I mean, uh, there, one person said to me just the other day, can there be one part of my life that is not completely dominated by conversations about Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. And you think about the way this one figure uh, has emerged, whatever one thinks of this person, uh, the way that every family, church, community has been uh, split apart by our opinions of this person. I I just don't think we would have ever imagined that a decade ago or 20 years ago.
1: What is the hold, though? I mean, what's the appeal?
2: Well, I think that uh, there is a sense that he's a fighter, uh, that he, he doesn't have weakness because he's willing to, to take it to the people who are perceived to be enemies. And so that kind of fighting language, I think, is, is energizing to some people. And then you add to it, there are, uh, there are people who, who would say, well, he promised that he would appoint a certain kind of uh, judge and justice, and he did. Uh, and so they're willing to overlook a lot of other things. But I think largely it's the same reason why other Americans uh, who are supporting Trump do, which is that they, they think he speaks for a kind of resentment that's lashing back and lashing out.
1: It's interesting that there's sort of these two competing strains that we you've talked about that you also talk about, you know, in the book, which is, you know, on the one hand, 76% of white evangelical Christians identify as Republican today. That's up from 53% 20 years ago. This is according to the Survey Center on American Life. And I think, I think, that the, I think it's pretty well known by now that white evangelical Christians were, were and remain some of President Trump's strongest supporters. On the other hand, the number of white Americans who identify as evangelical Christians is dropping rapidly, according to the survey. The same survey that I just cited here. I'm just, how do you, what do you, what do those two things mean?
2: Well, I think it's even worse than that, uh, because at the same time that we're seeing people who are actual evangelicals uh, refusing to use the word and walking away from it. We have other people who are embracing the word who who might not even go to church at all, Mm. but who think I must be an evangelical because of my political convictions. That's not an even trade. And so, whenever someone says to me, I just don't want to think of myself as an evangelical, in almost every case, that's somebody with a high view of the Bible, a high view of, of Jesus, all of the, the classic markers of evangelical Christianity. Uh, that's, that's really concerning to me.
1: You're in the faith business, so what's, what's giving you hope right now? Because I, I see this book both as a, a testament to your sadness and and grief over what has happened, but it also is kind of a statement of your belief that that other, something better is possible. So why don't we talk about that, like um, how you fix this thing.
2: (laughs) Well, every time that I start to get cynical, uh, I encounter someone whose life is being transformed by the gospel. And uh, so that's happening all over the country. Uh, You look at what's happening among young Christians who really aren't interested in a a mascot for their political views or Mm. or something else, but who really are seeking to follow Christ. That gives me uh, great hope. When I look at what's happening around the world, and the way that uh, there's a vibrant, growing kind of Christianity in uh, Asia and Africa and Latin America. And that's, uh, that's becoming more and more, uh, those are the leading areas of evangelical Christianity. That gives me a lot of hope. And then I'm a Christian. Uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit, so I can't be somebody without hope.
1: The book is titled Losing Our Religion, An Altar Call for Evangelical America. So for people who aren't familiar with the concept, what's an altar call and why is your book that?
2: Well, an an altar call is when uh, at the end of a a service, the church invites people to come forward to repent of sin and to uh, confess faith. And so the reason I chose that language of altar call is because it's bad news. You, You have to first recognize something is not going right with my life, Uh, and it's also good news. There is another way. There is a a hope for new birth, and that's what I'm hoping to say in this book. Well, what does it look like? I think it looks like what's happening right now, we're in a a time of of great change, and you have a lot of the old coalitions that are breaking down, but a lot of new alliances and coalitions that are emerging, people who are finding each other. And so I think that looks like a a different kind of Christianity that really is is much more in touch with ancient Christianity. And uh, I think we've seen that happen repeatedly in the history of of the world, the Wesley brothers and and others who have come in and revitalized Christianity by saying, let's get back to the, the basics of what it is we believe.
1: We're not here to sort of decide for people or to kind of tell people what they should believe or not believe. But the reality of it is there is an increase an increasing secularization of the United States and the West. I mean, if you look at kind of the rates of connection to Christian faith in Europe, for example, or Western Europe in particular, it's very low. And then there are a lot of people who would say that this is exhibit A of why this is kind of a toxic force. And really, we would all would be better off if... More people walked away from it. I mean, obviously, you're not in the business of trying to persuade people who believe that firmly. That's not kind of who this book is for. But, but, but for those who do feel that way, who may be listening to our conversation, do you have a message for them?
2: Well, I would say fundamentally the question is, is it true? And by it, I mean uh, the gospel, the resurrection of Christ. That changes the way that we see everything. But secondly, I would say it's important, even for people who are outside the church, what happens within the church. Uh, There are going to be uh, religious Americans Uh, forever. And uh, that has a lot to do with the health of the rest of the nation. So even if you're, even if you are somebody far distant from evangelical Christianity, you ought to be hoping for a healthier evangelical Christianity. It affects everyone, uh, what's happening. And that's especially true when we look around and we see institution after institution after institution in crisis. Uh, you, you, You can't, the rest of the country can't come in and replicate uh, what churches have, uh, have brought to uh, communities and to persons. And so when that becomes unhealthy, that's dangerous for everybody else. It's also dangerous when people use uh, religion. Uh, for authoritarian uh, or uh, demagogic ends. That's that's always been the case. Because if you can use religion, you can give oneself, you can give yourself an extra uh, kind of authority that says, if you disagree with me, you disagree with God. That matters to everybody.
1: Pastor Russell Moore, thank you so much for talking with us.
0: Thank you. You're listening to Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. Um, I, I had, uh, if you were listening uh, before the uh, the interview, I I was looking for. Uh, I, I said I was going to sort of abbreviate it a bit. I was going to. Uh, uh, chop off or or cull out those things that were not significant uh, there was as I was listening to the interview and in, pretty much in lifetime my engineer and and and, and just now nah. <laughs> it all stayed in and, and 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 there's just so much in there worth considering now i, I on a broad level uh and, and by the way I, I think i did i mispr- i think i mispronounced uh, uh, the interviewer's name a little bit earlier on. I think I identified her as uh, Michelle Morris. Michelle Marcus. I think it's Michelle Martin. So forgive me on that. In fact, she's she's been around uh, in the in New York news circles and, and on air forever and ever and ever. Highly respected. She's working with the uh, Christian and I guess others in PBS right now. But having said that, there isn't a thing that was just said by this admittedly uh, wholeheartedly embracer of evangelical principles in Christianity that I basically would what do I want to say disagree all right disagree with yeah i don't I, I am not an evangelical in the sense that i choose to live my life or i i believe with the same degree of fervor and with the same results and consequences in the things that that uh, that russell might believe in for purposes of his internal life but he said something towards the end of that interview that is so critically important. Namely, that we cannot undo the, the, the importance of religion within American life. We have so many institutions failing us. I mean, you know, the Supreme Court and Clarence Thomas and, and all of the, the garbage and the crap going on there, and, and of course, and, and, and the Congress, and, and, and specifically and particularly the House of Representatives, the, 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 the idiocy, the clown show, the, the, the brinksmanship, the, the do nothing but yell, scream, and, and, and attack, and, and, and we, we see this everywhere. Or we sense it to be uh, extrapolated into every aspect of our lives. I'm not sure that we we necessarily see it everywhere in a local life situation. But but back to but back to Russell Moore here. Um, I agree with I I, I grew up uh, in a world in an environment where that level of commitment in a in a Roman Catholic context. Was absolutely familiar. I mean, it it wasn't excess in my in my, in my growing up. It wasn't excessive. It wasn't extreme. Or at least I I I could not interpret anything he said, given my background, as excessive or extreme within the mindset of the community that I grew up in. That that's the stuff that was that was I was inculcated with, the stuff that, that I had in my brain, the stuff that I ultimately had to push off against, when I recognized, and in my own case, I was probably about, I don't know, 19 years old by the time I made an absolute clean break with Roman Catholicism. Now, in my particular case... The reasoning well you can I could give you a thousand reasons uh, there was a, There were the abuses that the church was going on there were There was a sudden realization that what had been presented as as absolute scientific truth was a was nothing but opinion the the understanding of of what the gospels and who might have written them, and blah blah blah, the historical reference and, and that all then just snowballed up. With and but this but the core of it the core of it was the utterly inappropriate behavior the 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 the, the, the blatant uh, the blatant ugliness of what was happening within within the church within this divine human institution that was really proving itself to be little more than a corrupt human institution. And with divine tacked on there for, you know, tax purposes and uh, to attract a crowd. Sorry if, that, if, if, if anyone's offended by my saying that, but that's how I reacted a bunch of years ago. And there are many, many wonderful Catholic people out there. I know a bunch of them. And I know a bunch that aren't so wonderful these days. Okay. Who am I to judge? You know, the Pope says that as well. I'm not the Pope, but uh, yeah. But that's the reality. But back to Russell Moore. I I can't I can't feel uncomfortable. I can't take great fear out of anything about his position or where he's coming from, what he's describing. The evangelical nature, uh, the evangelical church, the evangelical types at its, at its appropriate best is an absolute necessity within America, as is any other religion living up to its norms. Why do I say that? Because, and, and, I, and I, I write about this, and I'm not going to get into my own writings right now, but there are three things that organized religion can do that no other institution can do. Institutions collectively can do, and, and more. Uh, kind of suggests this towards the end of the, towards the end of that interview. But there are three things organized religions can do that nothing else can do. The first is to define and implement a commonly held moral code. I mean, okay, do this, don't do that. Yeah, it may be via uh, a dictum, it may be via narrative, it may be via uh, religious writings of whatever sort, but essentially, the code of conduct, this is right, this is wrong, don't do this, we shouldn't do that, we should be kind to the, we should be nice, love thy, don't love thy, be careful of, etc., etc. All these things that basically are at the basis, at the core, of how we treat one another ultimately. This is the stuff that is given to us more than through any other institutions through religion. Always has been that way. And it's necessary because those moral precepts, are largely, uh, largely inform the, the ideas and the words and the concepts of our Constitution. That's, that's the first thing. Only religion can do that. You, you can't, and, and if you try to legislate it, which, which seems to be what some people in the Congress and, and in state legislatures are doing, forget it. It, you, you can't do it. This is why we divided church and state in this country. We realized you can't legislate this stuff. It has to come from within. It has to be a core thing. Otherwise it becomes bastardized and it begins turning on itself because the political gain, the power that comes with being able to legislate someone's version of morality, corrupts the institutions that do it. This is, this is how it works. So this is, this is part of why America has worked largely up to now, because religion and politics have largely been kept fairly separate and each has been able to do what it's doing. But we're losing that with the evangelical movement and we're losing that with other forms of conservative Christianity and with other forms of conservative religion, not just here around the world. I'm repeating much of what you heard in the interview, but Going on from there, so the first thing that religions have to do is define and implement a common moral code that makes sense to, that's acceptable by, that can be incorporated by a, a country, a community a large set of communities. And religion has largely done that and done it incredibly well and largely maintains that structure, although that's fading to some extent. But only religion can do it. We can't get rid of religion and expect some kind of shared moral code that that defines the parameters of our common behavior and our attitudes towards one another to simply spring into existence. It's, It's not going to happen, okay? That's just not how it works. We need religion. We need religion, second, for charitable works. No, or based on that moral code, religion basically gives us the, uh, the notion that because of what we believe about how we should treat one another, charity, charity, helping those who have less, this is mandated. It is part and parcel. It's what, it's, it's what results from the core of this moral code that we all share. It it dictates that we are good to one another. That in the end, those two things are perfectly, perfectly symmetrical. They are perfectly mutually supportive. One implies the other. If you are living up to this code, you also are going to be charitable to help others. No other organized institutions in our country are able to basically do it and then on top of that to do it as effectively and we have a whole tax system and we have all sorts of systems in place that encourage religion to do things. Hospitals, uh, uh, orphanages, nurseries, name it. Everything that can be done to help people who who have less than we have, the collective we, in the name of religion because of the moral structure that religion has laid out. Two things, okay? So moral structure, charitable works. Organized religion, only they can do it. Okay, third thing. Three things I said. Here we go. This is the toughie. Only religion can basically emphasize and get the point across and unite all people across denominational and sectarian lines by the fact that we are all commonly of the same common uh, spirit if you now this this gets a little this gets tricky even in the wording but the main thing is if you are a member of any one religion your membership does not end what you are as a human with a moral code and a sense of charitable need does not end at the boundaries of your religion based on its theology, its narrative, or anything else. No, it extends beyond. We are brothers and sisters beyond, beyond the limits of our theologies, our narratives, our dicta. And this is what is grossly, grossly missing right now. That once you politicize religions, the tendency is to pull in the wagons or to maybe, maybe, for political purposes affiliate with maybe some other religious group that is politically, that that is as as insanely pro-Donald as you are, because you're getting one or two things that he said he would do that you feel supersede everything else about him. You can ignore all, you can ignore everything that he doesn't do involving moral codes and... and, uh, and, and, and charity, and, and and he's not even, and, and your sense of uh, breaking down barriers is, well, he's given us all something to focus on. But that means that you have to give up, as a person of religion, you have to give up all of the moral and charitable things that your religion would otherwise suggest because they work in direct conflict with embracing a Donald who is the worst of sinners, the worst of everything, the worst leader, the worst you could... He's simply a vehicle, a focal point, a mascot, if you will, for focusing grievance and anger. And when religion has to focus on grievance and anger for purposes of cohesion then religion is no longer able to function as religion. And I think that, I think that, that Russell Moore gets that. I, I think he gets it, and I think that's the problem that he's seeing here. So that what he's describing within the evangelical movement and the problems there are replicated throughout much of religion and religious institutions, and then just... Outward, into other institutions, and in our judicial system, in our legislative system, in so many things, in the way schools are being set up right now, in the efforts to basically kill learning, to just burn books, to ban this, and 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 which and 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 women's right. No, no, we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't. Uh, God, God wants us to basically uh, stop. Uh, stop everything uh, in his or his name and, and we're going to ban this and if you don't ban that, well then it's the end of the world. We're in a crouching... Go back to the interview. Re-listen to this to this show. Really. It, it, it's worth hearing that interview again. And I, and I wondered, I, I, I asked myself, just, a, just a, a wrap-up thought on this. If someone in the evangelical movement who is arguably the type of person that Russell Moore was describing, who basically has found this political, uh, has lost the, the essence, the, the, the true gospel-following nature of what he's, he or she is supposed to be a part of, And has instead embraced a political culture that essentially began as a, uh, as sort of a, uh, it it, it began in a parallel way. It, It was out there saying hi, give me a chance, and now basically it's become parasitic, and ultimately it's going to become just total. It may become all consuming of conservative religious movements. If someone in that situation could listen, just listen, listen to the interview I just played, would they simply get angry? Would they, would they be moved? Would they agree? Would they say, ah, oh, Russell Moore, no, 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 no. He's a turncoat. He used to be with us. Would they disagree? Would they, would they, would they be changed? At a minimum, we must begin by clarifying our own thought processes and positions so that we can be equipped to deal with this stuff, so that we can talk about it. None of this is going to change rapidly. The infection that's out there, and Trump is a poster child for it. He's a focal point of the infection. He may be a large part of what's now preserving it. But it was there to begin with, and, and the scabs and the bandages were pulled off, and the scabs were pulled off, and the stuff that was under the rocks, that 30% of America under the rocks, has basically been given far more power, and far more power not only within their, their own world, but within our, the larger American world, and by extension, the world. The world world. We have to understand where all this is coming from. And we must also understand that it's not going to end overnight. But there are immediate things. And the most immediate thing is keeping Donald out of the White House. Because if he gets in there, the American political system collapses. We can probably deal with everything else. Not the political, constitutional system collapses. He would have to pardon himself. And then he will go on a rampage, as he's promised. It will be a, it'll be a retribution tour, is what he's going to be doing. This has been promised already. So we've got to at least deal with the political reality that he must be kept out of the White House. But more than that, we have to understand that all of the ills besetting American society right now will not end simultaneously, assuming that Joe Biden, or possibly another Democrat, gets reelected in 2024. No, we're going to have to work our way out of this. And with Donald out of the picture, that'll be a lot easier, but it's still going to take time it's it's not going to happen overnight but we but we we owe it to ourselves to educate ourselves about what's really really going on and part of that education and part of that reality testing is to also realize that it took a long time to get to where we are. It's going to take some work and time to get out of it, but we must really clear-eyed understand what the situation is and what the most immediate stakes are for not dealing with at least, at least Leadership in this country. That if we simply said, "Oh, grievance is fine. There's no problem. Let Donald come back in again." What possible damage could there be? We would lose our Constitution. I'm convinced of that. And I, 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 I again would would urge you, go back, listen to the show. Listen, listen, listen to that interview uh, with Russell Moore. Um, it is, it is so. Descriptive and important within its own context, but so also emblematic of the things besetting all other institutions, key institutions in this country, and the stuff that winds up dividing us. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a platform for comprehension. And boy, we need more of those, don't we? I think we could also use a little jazz. jazz. Center Left Radio has been here for more than seven consecutive years and more than 800 individual episodes. 800. Think of that. We support your needs. Now we're asking you to support ours. Take a moment. And go to our website, www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com, and go to the donate page. And when you get there, give whatever you can on a one-time or maybe a recurring basis, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever you can contribute to make Center Left Radio's unique progressive voice stronger and even more significant. As the full extent of the wrongdoing of Donald Trump and his associates becomes all the more evident, and as we enter this final consequences stage of the Trump saga. Yeah, you know what's at stake. And I know, we all know, we can count on you. On behalf of all of us at Central F Radio, thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and thank you once again for being part of today's show. Pastor Russell, Russell Moore talked about the problems, what what grievance and anger and, and, and political misconceptions can do to debase and destroy the function. And he's talking about it in terms of the evangelical church, but we're seeing it in so many other areas of society. We can't solve everything at once but we can prioritize. Priority one, Donald Trump cannot return to the White House.